welcome to our Kingdom Culture Podcast. For today's message, we are thankful for what God is doing through this podcast to encourage and transform lives around the world. If you have a story to share about how God has encouraged or transformed your life through this podcast, we would love to hear about it by emailing us at mystory@kingdomculture.ca. If you would like to support this ministry financially to help us bring messages like this to you every week, you can do so online at kingdomculture.ca at the Give option. We also would love to connect with you on our social media, on Instagram and Twitter at KC Ottawa, and Facebook at Facebook slash Kingdom Culture Ottawa. We pray that you would experience God today and be encouraged through today's message. Enjoy! One of those aspects of health in the heart is a heart of generosity. How many believe that? You can't, you can't remove generosity from the, the whole premise of the message of the gospel. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. G- at the core of the message is generosity. You can't, you can't remove generosity from the gospel. If you want to not be generous, it's to not be a reflection of who Jesus is. Because he is generosity. He doesn't do generosity. He doesn't just do generosity once a year, once a, once a, a moment. He, he is generosity. Just like he doesn't, he doesn't do love, he is love, right? He embodies it. This is, this is God's heart for you. That people would look at you and just feel generosity. Not that they would just know, oh yeah, this person's generous once in a while. They do generosity. No, they are generous. It's who they are. It's in their nature. That's the nature of who Jesus is. And we do stuff like this, and we're going to facilitate this at the end. For anybody that may have missed it last week, we'll have it available for the next uh, two weeks until the 18th. Uh, if you want to be a part of this, and this is, there's no obligation. This is for people that call Kingdom Culture their home and want to be a part of this. Just remember this, that a lot of people in this room right now and over the past many, many years that have encountered Jesus only were able to do that in the house of God, in, kingdom, in this community, because somebody else sacrificed in moments like these. Because someone else's investment, someone else's sacrifice, and it's not just above and beyond their normal giving. For some people, this is the first time they step into trusting God. For some people, it's a step in the right direction. And God has a grace for our journey. And so we, we want everybody to be a part of it, not because God needs money, but because God wants your heart. And he knows that if money is hard to give, your heart will be even harder to surrender. Should I repeat that for those in the back? If your money is hard to give, when given the opportunity to be gener- generous, he knows that your heart will be a lot harder to surrender. It doesn't matter where you're at. Let me just say this. The principles of God, the truth of God, does not, does not um, bear favorites, does not focus on favorites to say, well, if you're struggling financially, then you're exempt. Or if you're rich, you know, it's all, it's, uh, that, this is talking to you. Or if you're in the middle, it's talking to you. No, this is the principle across the board. The people that were celebrated the most actually often in Scripture were those that had the least and sacrificed the most. Not the wealthy who gave out of their surplus. So you may be thinking, well, I don't have anything to give. Yes, you do. A dollar for you might be 10000 for somebody else. It's not about the size of the gift. It's about the size of the sacrifice because that's a reflection of your heart. What does it feel like on the inside and can you trust him with it? Because the God I know 
man, he is so faithful, he'll blow your mind. He will absolutely wreck your mind on what he can do. I heard a story just yesterday of a couple in this church that decided to give for the House of Hearts, and they said they felt like God said give 50% more than they originally had planned. They gave it, and the next day somebody came up to them, gave them a gift for the exact amount to the dollar. That doesn't make any sense, but that's the whole kingdom. The kingdom does not make sense. Living in kingdom life does not make logical sense. It makes faith sense. Because when you step out in faith, things happen that are miraculous that cannot be explained. And you might say, well, that's a coincidence. No, it's a godsidence. There are no coincidences. God's not up there surprised. Like, I didn't know that was going to happen. Wow. Shoot, that would have been cool to be a testimony, but man, that was just a coincidence. No, God has orchestrated the steps of the righteous, which means that he's already got your next step. So he knows if you take the next step, he's got the next step after that already ready, already packaged for delivery. The UPS man is ready to give you what he's supposed to give you. Are you hearing this this morning? It's interesting because, you know, when people talk about money, and we don't do this a lot in church, kingdom culture, this is not like an everyday thing. We do this. Yes, we do give opportunity for giving every week into the house of God, investing into the house of God, investing into your spiritual life. But one of the things I love talking, I love talking about money in church because it's something that is so, has so bound people for so long that if you are hearing me talk, and it's bothering you that I'm even mentioning money in church, there's something up here that needs to be tweaked. Because Jesus talked more on money than he did on prayer for a reason. Did you know that? He talked more on money than he did on prayer. More than 500 verses on prayer, more than, nearly 500 on faith, and over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. You know, Jesus talked about money in 16 of his 38 parables. And there's a reason for it, because he knew that if you didn't, if you were not free from the bondage of fear that money can bring, that when you pray, your prayers would not be very good. You're like, well, what do you mean God doesn't hear my prayer? No, God hears your prayer doesn't mean your prayers are good. Prayers that are good are prayers that are motivated by faith. Prayers that are motivated by fear are not good. Now, I'm not saying don't pray when you're in fear. But make sure you put some faith at the forefront. Because if you only pray when you're in worry, you don't have a prayer life. So he knows if money is the guiding principle to your life, and all you can think about is money, 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 bills, 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 and all you can think about, it's ruling you, guess what you're doing? You're meditating on the God of money without even realizing it. Versus the God who has provided and owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is what the scripture says, which means he has all the provision you will ever need and provision you can't even see because you can't see a thousand hills, and you can't see cattle on a thousand hills. It's too impossible you don't have that kind of vision. So what that says is he has provision upon provision upon provision that you can't even see until you start moving towards it. And you only move towards it by trusting and realizing that he is the God over all and not money. 
And that's why the Apostle Paul encouraged his spiritual son Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because when you fear of not having enough, you have made an agreement with the love of money. Let me say that again. When you fear not having enough, you've made an agreement with the love of money. Or how about having faith that God is enough and will provide for you when you get things in life in order in your life? Guess what happens? You begin to see that God is the God of more than enough. And the reason why it's the root of all kinds of evil, because it starts there. It starts there. The fear. It's like the, the seed that goes into fertile soil in your ground and produces all kinds of rotten fruit that you don't want. You start making really bad decisions about relational things. You start making really bad decisions about investments and things because you're fear, 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 fear. Right? You start making uh, hasty decisions in life that you will regret. Never make a decision when you're emotionally drunk. And you're emotionally drunk when you're in trauma. You're emotionally drunk when you're in trauma, you're in crisis, and you're in fear. Because you're disillusioned. You're not sure what to do. You're like, oh my gosh, this is the end of me. And you start to make dumb decisions relationally, career-wise, and financially when you're in that state. And that's all because you made an agreement without realizing that you love money more than you love God. And I've seen this over and over again. The healthiest people that I know have an understanding that God is first in my finances. And you're like, you're like, well, what are you saying? I'm not healthy if I've, I've not done that. Only you can decide that. Only you can know that. But if your response always to every time generosity is being pulled from you or encouraged from you or for you, if your response is, I don't have, I don't have, you've made an agreement with the love of money. Because God would never encourage you or ask anything from you that he's not already blessed you and given you. Hashtag facts. So I, I want to go into this week six as we wrap up this series called Heart Work. Because if you've been with us for the last six weeks, you know that heart work is hard work. And my prayer has been that God has done some hard work within your heart. It's hard because the hardest place to break through is the heart. The hardest place to break through is how many people have no-go zones. Anybody know people that have no-go zones? You just can't go to those zones with people. You can't bring up this topic, that topic, because if you do, nuclear war, right? How many know people like that? Because the hardest place to break through is the heart space. Vulnerability is scary for people. Digging deep is scary for people. And the, re the reason why we do the House of Hearts moments like this is because when you step out and sacrifice and begin to trust God with something that everybody holds so dear and often struggles the most with fear in most of the time. Generally speaking, most people have the biggest struggle when it comes to money and their relationship with God. Generally speaking. And when we do moments like these, we break parts of ourselves on the inside to gain health. It's less about what we're giving to and more about why we're giving and the heart work that God does when we do it. Are you hearing this this morning? Think of it like making sacrifices for your kids, friends, family. It's less about 
often the sacrifice for the individual and more about what God does in your life as a result of it. If God gives you an opportunity to bless your family, bless a friend, bless a coworker, give somebody sacrificial time, if God gives you that opportunity, it's less about the result and more about your obedience and what God does in your heart because sometimes the result doesn't come. Anybody ever felt like they've sacrificed and there was no result? Come on. <laughs> the one-on-one of betrayal. You feel like you've given, 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 and all you got was betrayal. All you got was no result, no harvest, no crop for all the crap you went through. Anybody feel that before? It's less about the outcomes in those situations and more about your ability to persevere and be a giver when it doesn't feel good. And there's no promise of return. It's more about what God does in your heart, makes you a leader, makes you a, one, a man, a woman of perseverance, a man who's not just doing things out of a false motive to get something, but to do it because of love. Because love, you cannot separate love and generosity. They're, they're married together. They sleep in the same bed. Generosity is the, 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 the reflection of love. There is no generosity there is no love without generosity and there's no generosity without love real generosity i'm not talking about a generosity that you want to do so you could look like you're generous and kind of make yourself look good like look what that person that did wow they are so amazing like the i want to i want to work to get god's attention i want to work to get people's attention no i'm talking about a generosity motivated out of a kingdom love that even when nobody notices, you're generous. The people that are real generous in life are the ones that do it even when nobody notices. And nobody acknowledges it. You tracking with me? It's like I, I say this all the time. I, can't, I think one of the, thing, the things that drives me nuts the most is if somebody is buying me a coffee or buying me a meal and they, they buy it for me, they, they initiate it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't even want it. They initiate it. And they say, you can get me next time. That is not generosity, by the way. That's, that is giving with conditions, with an expectation. That's a burden. It's like somebody buys me like a crazy, you know, and I, I like, I'm a foodie. So, like, I'm not a, no offense, I'm not like a McDonald's guy. You know, I'm not like a, my kids have only been to McDonald's, I think, like three times in their life. And they had bad experiences every time. So, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, like, when you go out and you have, like, a nice experience. And maybe you don't have the money to, to pay for that meal. But then they say to you, you can get me next time. It's like, no, I don't want the meal then. Because I want to get you next time because I love and I'm generous out of my own motivation, not because I feel like I have to now and I'm guilted. That's giving out of obligation. That's not generosity. And I want to encourage you and implore you to never say again to anybody that you bless, you get me next time. That is a really bad thing to do. It's not biblical, not kingdom, and not generosity. Some of you needed to hear that one. Some of you said it this week probably to your friend. You should go back and repent and retract that statement. You never have to get me next time because there will be no next time. No. <laughs> Let me read this, this scripture. I don't know how this is going to go because this is actually, I'm doing part two of a first part I did two weeks ago talking about the most non-controversial controversy. And so we're going to see where this lands, so please track with me. I want to encourage you to take some notes. This is going to be hyper-scriptural. What I mean by that is I'm going to overload you, probably, 
Your mind is going to be on overload, information overload. My prayer is that it's going to be revelatory overload. And so I want to encourage you to take some notes. Take out your notepad if you have a phone or something and take some notes. I just want to open up with what I opened up with the first week. And I'm going to read out of 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And I'm actually, actually, sorry, I'm going to fast track this a little bit. I'll give you the Coles notes. Basically, talking about Elijah the prophet. And he prophesies that there's going to be no dew, no rain for three and a half years. He gives this prophetic word to King Ahab. And then basically he goes and lives by a brook for a season for about two and a half years. And he's fed by ravens supernaturally. So God teaches him as he's already been teaching him about supernatural provision. Trusting God when it makes no sense. God's sending these ravens to feed him. And he's surviving. And things begin to shift at about the two and a half year mark. And this is verse 7. After the brook dries up and the famine really like hits hard, there's no more rainfall anywhere in the land. In verse 8 it says this, And the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to, to feed you. So I've given this widow who has nothing, who is poor, who actually needs breakthrough. I'm going to instruct her to give to you. How does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense, but that's kingdom. I've instructed her to give to you. Now, in this context, you've got to remember that when you read stuff like this, Elijah represents God to the people. He's the prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God. And in this context, the prophets would act as God to the people. Moses and Aaron were like a, a, a reflection of God to the people leading Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. So the people that God gave assignments to and anointed for a specific task of leadership back in the Old Testament were to be the representation of God to the people. So Elijah being fed is like or likened to us trusting God and feeding God, even though he doesn't need to eat. You get what I'm saying? We're actually investing, we're, we're putting God as the priority in this process. So he says, I've instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went, verse 10, so he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks. And he asked her, would you please bring me a little water and a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. Sounds kind of demanding, right? But he knows, he has the word. I've sent you there, there's a widow, and he might not even know the full scenario of what's going on with the widow maybe he didn't get that information from God but he does know that God's instructed a widow there to provide for him okay to put him first to make sure he's taken care of so could you please bring me a bite of bread to get me some water in a cup verse 12 but she said I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house then she says and I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. What a depressing sort of storyline, if you think about it. So here Elijah comes, I need some food, I need some water. She's like, I swear, I got nothing. But then she's like, but I got the ingredients for it. And this is what all of us often struggle with. God asks for us something, and our response is, I can't do that. But if you look within your life, you actually have the ingredients for it. You have the time, 
you have the ability, you have the skill, you have the passion, you have the desire, you have the resources relationally around you to actually do what God's called you to do. You may not have the bread made yet. You may not have the, the diploma on the wall yet, the education on the wall yet. You may not have the big business yet, but you have the ingredients for it. So instead of saying, I don't have it, say, hey, if you're asking it from me, you must believe that I have what it takes to get it. She had a wrong perspective of her situation. She actually had everything she needed. God was asking for bread, but really what he was asking for is, are you willing to sacrifice your ingredients, everything that you have, to put me first? It says in verse 13, but Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, because the fear, right? Remember the fear of not having enough. What's the first thing he, he addresses is the fear. Because once fear gets in, you've made an agreement with the love of money. He exposes the fear by saying, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do what you just said, but make me a little bread first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. Doesn't that sound selfish? But if you see it through the lens of he is acting as God in that moment, it is actually not selfish, and it's a test for the widow because the widow's already been given a word. Take care of him first, and I'll deal with you. Trust me with what's first, and then I'll bless you with what's left. We often want to use or trust God with what's left and feed ourselves first. This is the problem. When you don't trust God with what's first and you only use what's left, you will have even less available to you. But when you put God, put God first in first place, he's at the center like we were singing, the table is blessed. When Jesus is at the center of the table, at the head of the table, guess what? There's a blessing at the table. If he is sitting in the wrong seat at the table of your life, you're missing the blessing of God. It's not because God doesn't love you. It's because there is an order to things in life. He wants to be your first. That was the first commandment. Love the Lord your God. Let no other God be before you. First commandment, Exodus 20. It was the first commandment. Let no other God be before me. You know that in Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus calls mammon, which is money, a God. Let no other God be before me. Do not, do not let money be the deciding director of your life. Because when it is, you've made an agreement. He's your God, not me. And you can't serve two masters, he says in Matthew 6, 24. You'll either love one or despise the other. You can't partner with both at the same time. It doesn't work. Are you hearing this this morning? So we know the story. I'm almost done. I'm going to jump into this, part two. Use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. And then she, this is the promise, verse 14. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and crops to grow again. The promise. If you put me first, I will make sure you always have what you need. In the time of a famine. In the time when prime rates are blowing the roof off and you can't buy a house now or you can't afford your house or maybe you're even potentially going to lose your house. In a time where economic famine is happening and farmlands all around the world are mysteriously burnt, being burnt down. And in a time where you just don't know how life is going to go, what's going to happen in the city you live in. In a time where everything is shaking around you, do you make those things the priority and the focus or do you put God first? 
The kingdom that I live in and live from is not the kingdom of this world. You know why? I've been raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2. When I've let Jesus into the center of my life, what happened is now my spirit is united as one with him. My place of citizenship, first and foremost, is the kingdom. So if everything around me is saying, don't do this, don't do that, be wise, live by the worldly wisdom, my first response is, okay, God, what's your wisdom? Because your wisdom always trumps worldly wisdom. And it's God's wisdom to do what he wants you to do when he wants you to do it when it makes no sense. That's when it always makes the most sense. Putting him first makes the most sense. This widow put her first, put him first, Elijah first, and guess what? The miracle took place where she always had enough of the ingredients to make the bread so her and her son could live and not die. So I want to talk about part two today on week six of the most non-controversial controversy. The most non-controversial controversy, and that's putting him first in every area of your life. I, I, I believe this, that God is going to do some tweaking on your mind today. I say this every week. If you don't leave a little bit annoyed, a little bit frustrated, a little bit even skeptical, I've not done my job. If you leave just like, oh, that felt so good. No, it shouldn't always feel good. It should feel bad so that it can get better and be better and be gooder. I know that's not a word. Sometimes you might feel like sandpaper. But like you, when you use sandpaper initially, it's very rough, right? But after a while, it loses its roughness. That's what teaching is like. There are some teachings that will come out that will feel rough in the beginning. But as you break through and you keep going through the process, it will feel less rough. And now it will be like normal. And I know for me, every time that I am super offended or tripped up, I know that God is doing a, a work in me, like a deep work in me. He's, he's offending something in my mind to reveal something in my heart. And there's no better, no better surgery to have than spiritual surgery. Because your body might be dying, your body might be frail, your body might be weak, but if your soul is strong, you're winning. You're winning. Because the soul is the only eternal part of you that lives forever. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question is always, where is your treasure? What do you most think about? Whatever you treasure the most is what you most think about. What most occupies your mind space is what you meditate on day in and day out. And whatever that is, your heart will be there. Your heart will reflect that. Your heart will be attached to that. Is your treasure in what you're going to get or what you're going to give? It's always the question you need to ask yourself because the widow was challenged with this. She was looking forward to her last meal of what she was going to get, but God was looking for the meal she was going to give. Only so she could get more. And if you flipped your perspective of what you're going to give in life rather than what you're going to get in life, you will set yourself up for the miraculous in your life. But if you're only focused on what you're going to get, 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 because you're fearful and you're trying to hoard and you're not operating in peace, you're going to sacrifice what God wants to give you in the more. Always. Are you hearing this this morning? So part two, let's dive into this a little bit. And remember, like I said this last week, that before you get the home run in baseball, you have to pass through first. 
You can't, even if you get a, 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 like a home run, even if you get a hit into the stands, you get a home run, you still have to run the bases. You can't just go right to home. You don't just walk off the mound, off home plate, walk back to the bench. You've got to run the bases. So if you want the home run in life, you've got to pass through first. If you want to win in this area in life, spiritually speaking, you've got to trust God with what's first. You've got to pass through first to make it to second, to make it to third. So let's continue on. We have what we call the firstborn. I'm going to go through a bunch of different firsts, the value of biblical firsts, okay? Write these things down. We have the value of the firstborn. I'm going to be really teachy heavy in the next 20 minutes, okay? Exodus 13, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites, okay? So I'm going to build from the old into the new. So we see the totality of why there's a value of the first from the beginning of time, even all the way back to the Garden of Eden in the very first book of the Bible in the book of Genesis, okay? But Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. That's part of the reason why in that culture the firstborn son had the double portion of the inheritance. Got the blessing from the father, okay? There was legacy attached to the firstborn son, okay? And there are many reasons for that. We may get to that in a, a few moments. But according to Old Testament law, the firstborn animal was either to be sacrificed or redeemed. So if the firstborn that came, say a firstborn lamb, for example, if the firstborn was unclean, it was to be redeemed with a clean firstborn lamb. So think about this for a second. When you were born, you were actually, before Jesus, born morally unclean but who fixed that jesus he was called the lamb of god the firstborn among many brethren he was called he is the cornerstone he was the lamb okay he was the lamb of god that john announced in john saying that the lamb of god this is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world so Jesus was considered the lamb, the firstborn clean lamb to redeem all of us unclean lambs. You follow me now? That's why he calls us sheep. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. Sheep are the dumbest animals. There's a reason for that. Not to say that you're dumb, but to say that you, it's an absolute dependence on nothing else but him, the shepherd. No dependence on self, a dependence on him. That's what kingdom looks like, dependence upon God. Because Adam and Eve chose independence from God and it got them into trouble. Now, follow me here. So this is a picture of the gospel. The firstborn, if it was unclean, was to be redeemed, which is what Jesus did, for all of us unclean, okay? Exodus chapter 12, verse 7. Egypt's firstborn, and I'm just going to paraphrase here, because Israel as a people in bondage, 400 years of slavery in Egypt were called by God their firstborn, his firstborn. God called Israel, his people, his firstborn. And guess who was holding back the firstborn? Pharaoh. Right? Pharaoh was holding back the first. What happened to Pharaoh? Well, he had a hard heart. But a lot of bad things happened, right? Lots of plagues happened, didn't they? How many plagues happened? 
Lots of plagues happened. Lots of bad things happened because he was holding God's firstborn in captivity. And God was like, fine. If you don't let go of what's first, I'm going to take your first. I'm going to take your firstborn. Because the first belongs to me. The firstborn belongs to me. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to tell my firstborn to put blood on their doorpost. I'm giving you a fast track paraphrase of the storyline here. There's going to be an angel of death that strolls the city. Okay? An angel of death that strolls the city. And if the angel sees the blood of, the, of a firstborn lamb spread across the doorpost, the angel will pass by. That was a statement of honor and trust that, God, I am honoring you with my first. And because of that, I am protected. You're like, well, what do you mean by that? Let me tell you this. When you put God first in every area of your life, you stand protected. It doesn't mean you won't have trial. doesn't mean you won't have tests. doesn't mean your washing machine won't break down. I don't believe that. But what's protected is your soul. The enemy can't touch your soul. Why? Because if you are consistently putting him first in your life in an area that so many people struggle with, even financially, what you are saying is, I trust you when it makes no sense and you get the best. My bills get the left, what's left over. Not what's first. They get what's left over. Hear this. If your focus is to pay everyone else, the government and your bills, before you give God what's best, you've missed it already. That should bother some people in this room. If you pay your debt, if you pay your bills, before you trust God, I'm just going to say this, that is not trusting God. Try it and watch what God does. You're like, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. The Bible that you read that I'm preaching from does not make sense. The resurrection does not make sense. Miracles of walking on water do not make sense. Healing does not make sense. Trusting God with our finances does not make sense. But when we do, it makes the most sense because we see the miraculous take place in and through our life. Are you hearing this this morning? You know what the word Pharaoh means? It means iron. Some of us are in like iron bars trapped in a prison. We're like the Pharaoh holding back God's first. Pharaoh is holding back the firstborn. We're like the Pharaoh often holding back what's first, only giving God what's left over. God wants us to release and let the people, the firstborn, go. That was the, that was the, the interaction. Moses is like, let my people go. Once we let go of what, what, what is first in our life, God will take care of the rest. This is what happened with the widow. When she let go of what was first, her only handful, what happened? The rest was taken care of. The rest is blessed. Write that down. When the first is given. The rest is always blessed when the first is given. Oh, this is so good. Hopefully this is shifting in you something. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, He is the imp image, speaking of Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This Greek word literally means first or earliest, to go ahead, where we get the English word prototype from, okay? So Jesus is the prototype. He is the firstborn, the prototype for which every one of us as born-again believers, those that have let Jesus into our lives, are to model our lives after. He is the cornerstone. The cornerstone in a building is the first stone set in place to which all the other stones are set in reference to. Jesus is called our 
cornerstone. He is the prototype. He is the first. He is the beginning. Everything else after is to reflect that. Without that being in place, you aren't able to lay the other bricks. You follow me? Without trusting God with what's first, you aren't able to bring into order the other bricks that build up your life. There's chaos. There's no design. There's no model to follow after. It's so important that we, we get this. Romans 8 verse 29, for God knew his people in advance. He chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Before you were ever even born, God chose you to be like him. He is the prototype that you are to model yourself after. The only thing you're predestined for is to be adopted into the family of God and to be like him. That's it. Whether or not you accept that is up to you. Biblical predestination is simply that he has predestined you to be adopted into the family of God. He's welcomed you in. The invitation's already been sent out. He's just waiting for the RSVP to be responded to. He is the supreme. He is the highest. He is the most important. When he is first, the rest of us comes alive. What's alive reproduces itself. If the 90%, if the rest of our life comes alive when we trust God with what's first, what's alive has the ability to pre reproduce itself. Dead, the dead can't reproduce itself. What's alive can. Let's go to the chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build on this for a second, okay? Please stay with me. I know we're, we're, we're pushing the time here. But I want to get through this. I feel like this is so valuable for us. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. Later she gave birth, speaking of Eve, to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest. This is back in the beginning before the law ever was introduced, okay. One of the first times we see the mention of the first fruits idea. Honoring God with what's first, okay. Abel became a shepherd. Cain cultivated the ground, verse 3. And it was time, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some. Everyone say some. Some of his crops. That doesn't sound like the best, does it? I present, I present some. Here's some. Here's my leftover. Here's some. I'm keeping the best for myself. Here's some. As a gift to the Lord. Verse 4 says this. Abel also brought a gift. The best portions of the what? Firstborn lambs from his flock. The best portions. Abel offered the best. Oft offered what felt probably like in that time a sacrifice, while Cain just offered what was left over. Cain just offered some. Yeah, it was still giving. Yeah, it was still an offering, so to speak. But God doesn't care about the offering. He cares about how the offering reflects your heart. What he cares about is your heart. Are you bringing your best? Are you honoring God with your best? Or are you compromising in life to honor yourself above him who is the lead of your life. This, is, this should be a very challenging word for us this morning. It says here, listen to this in the latter part of verse 4. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. He didn't care about the gift. He cared about the heart. He's like, I'm all about the heart. I am the God of the heart. What you do is a reflection of your heart. But this made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. And we know at the end of the story, Cain lost it and became jealous and 
killed his brother. How about this? The first commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You must not have any other God before me. I want to be first. I want to be first. No other God before me. Or how about this? The first fruit, write this down. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 to 10 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So, this is a promise, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That word to honor means to put weight on, to give something that has weight. To honor is to put weight on something. To put weight on God. To I'm putting weight on you that you've got my back. I'm going to put the weight on you to provide for my barns by honoring you with what? My wealth and my possessions. The things that mean something to me. Possessions is the word for riches, substance, wealth. The word for first fruits here means the beginning, the chief, the chiefest parts, the principal thing. The word for increase means revenue. Upon the increase of my revenue, I'm going to honor you, put weight on you to show me that you're a bigger God when it comes to giving than I am. Because I've been the God of my life, I've been the God, but I want you to be the God of my life. And so I'm going to put weight on you to provide for me and trust you with what I've got. Remember, when first things are first, the rest is blessed. So where do we bring our first fruits? What, is it, what am I talking about? What, is, what does it say biblically as to where we bring our first fruits? Listen to this, Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into where? The house of the Lord your God. That word for first fruits, once again, means early ripened things. If you do not give and trust God with your first fruits, guess what happens? Those ripened things becomes rotten. God wants your ripened things, your ready things, your choicest first part of what is valuable to you. It's not selfish because God cares about your heart. He's teaching you about trusting him when it makes no sense. The only time that God says, test me in this, is in the book of Malachi. When it comes to what we call, and the Bible calls, tithing and offerings. The word tithe comes from a Hebrew root that means 10% or 10, a tenth. This is where it comes from. And I'm going to read this scripture to you. Before you go, oh, that's Old Testament. Let me get to the end in 15 minutes, 12 minutes. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says this. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a, a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and in offerings. Then in verse 4 it says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Now, a lot of people focus just on the tithe part. Let me go back one part of this verse where it says in verse um, 6, the latter part of verse 6, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So think about this, this, this comparison for a second. He says, a reflection of your turning away is that you stop trusting me with your finances and increase. You become wishy-washy, you follow these weird doctrines, you're off track, 
you're derailed in your spiritual life. Chaos is in your spiritual life. You're wondering why. You're, you're listening to all the new social media feeds about all the new things and cancel this and cancel that and deconstruction and all this. And you're following the way of destruction. And the reflection of that is that you've stopped bringing in your best into the storehouse of God, the house of God, trusting me with your finances. He says, the way you're going to return back to me is by giving. Interesting. He doesn't say repent. He doesn't say get on your knees, worship, go into sackcloth, fast for three days. He says, the way you're going to start the journey of coming and bringing your spiritual life back on track is by giving. Why? Because giving is a reflection of the heart position. Interesting, isn't it? The way you're going to get out of a funky place in your spiritual life is by giving. Because they say, how do we return to you? God says, return to me. Return to me. How do, we get, how do we do that? By bringing your full tithe into the storehouse, your tithe and your offering. You know why he says full tithe? Because people weren't bringing their full tithe. Like I tithe, I give 10%. I put, you know, 1% to the tip at the restaurant. 2% to the, the neighbor next door, buy them apple pie. You know, I bought the ingredients for the apple pie, so that counts as my, no, that's not what he's talking about. That's just generosity. Just do that to be kind. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about sustenance in the house of God so the work of God can continue in a city and in a nation. That's what he's talking about. When the house of God is taken care of, the people are taken care of, and the people can actually make an impact in the world around them. That is, that's what he's addressing. And there was also this thing that would happen because people were like, well, you know, people back then, they brought in their crops. Yes, they did. They brought in their crops. They brought in their harvest. They brought it into their storage rooms in the house of God that housed these things. But then also there was money that represented these things. People would sell their crop because they didn't want to bring like a whole bunch of bananas. Bananas, not really bananas, but they didn't want to bring a whole bunch of corn or whatever into the storehouse of God. So they would sell it. For money and bring the money. But then God was like, if you're going to sell your crop, then you actually, you can read it in, in, Le in Leviticus chapter 27. If you're going to sell your crop, you need to add an extra 20% onto that. Because people are robbing me. What they were doing is, they were selling their crop for a profit to somewhere else, and they were not giving a tithe of that. They were keeping part of that for themselves. So he's addressing, you're not bringing in the full tithe. You're selling your stuff keeping a little bit for yourself, not honoring me with your first, and that's what I'm addressing. And it was tithes and offerings. Are you hearing this this morning? Bring the full thing. And he said, watch me, test me. It's the only thing he says, test me. This is why I said like a few weeks ago, if you want to see if God is real in this, test him. Try it. What do you have to lose? Try it. Begin to trust him with your finances. See what God does in and through your life. Man, I, I feel like this is like a three-week teaching in and of itself. Actually, I had 14 pages of notes on this one topic. Tithing is an act of worship as old as Abraham as he gave tithes to what, who was called Melchizedek, who had no beginning, had no end. Jesus is referenced in Hebrews in the, in the New Testament as Melchizedek, as a spiritual Melchizedek. And Abraham tithed in that process. People say, well, tithing's not in the New Testament. He tithed once. Then they use Genesis chapter 28, verse 22, about Jacob, who has this encounter with God. He, he calls the place the house of God, and he tithes. People say, Jacob tithed, tithed once. 
happened one time. Actually, that's not true. We don't know how many times it happened. He made a dedication to God that I will trust you with my tithe. Read that in a second. Over the centuries, what had happened was their Jews, the legalists, Jesus rebuked them in Matthew 23, verse 23. Because the legalists were tithing upon everything. Like their mint, their cumin, all their herbs. But look how spiritual I am, I'm tithing. God was like, you've neglected the other things, justice, mercy. And he says in Matthew 23, verse 23, woe to you. He rebukes them. You hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says this, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Keep tithing, because that's not even an issue, guys. This is a non-issue. It's not controversial. This is what I'm saying. It's not controversial. Keep doing that, but don't do it to, to showcase your righteousness to me. Like, don't neglect the more important matters. What he's saying is tithing is a low-level kingdom principle. It's a low-level. You know why it's a low-level? It's the same reason. It's the same reason why Jesus flipped the switch on adultery. You know, he did. If you read the, the Ten Commandments, he said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But then Jesus came on the scene in the flesh and said, now I say to you, if you even commit it, if you even lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. He flipped the whole switch. He said, that's basic. Yeah, don't commit the act, but I'm going even deeper now. Don't even think about the act. So if, if you can't even deal with the behavior, how are you going to deal with the thought? He flipped the whole thing. So it's a baseline. It's obvious. He's like, don't, don't, don't neglect the tithe. Keep doing that, but don't forget about the mercy, the justice, and do it out of the right motive. I'm rebuking you because your motives suck. That's what he's saying. <laughs> I'm woe to you because your motives are off. You're doing it, you think that's what's making you, keeping you spiritual. No, no, you're neglecting more important things. These are baseline things. And then you have this. You have the irreligious people, okay, listen to this. Neglected the tithe by disobeying God and deprived the temple ministry of what it needed to keep going. And I know this because it says in Nehemiah that he returned. Nehemiah 13, chapter, 10, chapter 13, verse 10. Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, and the temple storerooms where they kept the tithes and offerings were empty of produce, and many of the priests and Levites had abandoned their service to go back home and work their fields in order to care for their families. So this rebuke of returning and bringing your full tithe in, 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 into the storehouse of God and the offering is really a rebuke to say, listen, you're robbing the temple of its potential impact in a community. You're robbing the ability of the house of God to be strong. But most of all, let me tell you this. It says here in Malachi, you're robbing God. You know why you're robbing God? Because God doesn't need your money. That makes no sense. What do you mean you're robbing God? You're not stealing from God. You're robbing God because you're robbing yourself of being God's messenger. You're, you're not robbing God. Like, God doesn't need your money. But you're robbing yourself. And when you rob yourself, you rob God. Because God's called you to a purpose and a task. And when you rob yourself of the blessing he wants to put on you because you've made him first, you're actually robbing God. See that. Because people always say, well, I'm under a curse now. My washing machine broke. I'm not tithing. No. I don't believe that. You're robbing God because you're robbing yourself of fulfilling and living in your full potential by trusting God with your 90, not your 10. Because your 10% you do not give. 
You return. It belongs to him. The firstborn belongs to him. The 90 is what you give. The purpose of the house of hearts is the 90, is the giving sacrificially. It may be, for some people, the start of their 10. And that's okay. But the purpose is the sacrifice of the 90. That's where sacrifice lives. That's where generosity lives. Generosity is not tithing. Let me just tell you right now. Because it doesn't belong to you. The firstborn is his. Don't be a pharaoh. Don't hold back the firstborn. The first, the choicest, the cheapest part. So then we flip over into grace giving. People say to me all the time, man, I've, I've had so many interesting conversations over the years about this su subject. People say they want to argue. The people that always want to argue about this, about grace giving. Oh, it's going under grace now. We give under grace. Yeah, we 100% do. Paul talks about it. I'll read it to you. Second Corinthians chapter 8. I'll read it to you if you want. First Corinthians 16. But they want to argue, well, we're under grace. We're under grace. Well, if you... Grace actually empowers you to go above and beyond what was expected into the law. Grace empowers you to not lust in your heart. The law says if you commit adultery, you're going to be stoned to death. That was the culture back then. Okay? But now he's like, I'm going to give you the grace to not even lust in your heart. Grace empowers you to go above and beyond what was expected as a baseline. That's what grace giving is. And the people that always have had the argument around this always want to justify why they can't even give God 10%. And I'm not trying to be aggressively um, overbearing in this, but I'm trying to challenge the house of God today. That when you trust God with what belongs to him, I guarantee you, you will see amazing things happen in your life. Your soul becomes so much more healthy. Because it's one area that you can keep trusting over and over again. Over and over again. You can say, I trust God with my time, my gifts. Yeah, but what about the thing that means the most to you, that causes the most fear and anxiety in your life? It's a whole other thing. But it's all about motivation. We could go on and on about this. I know I'm going long here. People are exiting the building. I love this. The guy that invented the caterpillar, the, the um, caterpillar machinery, his name is R.G. Letourneau, and he addressed this topic around giving because he was the guy, he was, God, he was called God's businessman, and he lived off 10% and gave 90% of his income away. That was his model. Super inspiring. He was called God's businessman. They called him that. But he, he addresses this thing about motive as to why you're giving. It really impa impacts me, and I, I think it will really impact you. He said, if you give because it pays, it won't pay. So, in other words, if you're just giving because of what you're going to get back, you're not really giving. When you give sacrificially without any expectation of return, just simply out of love, trust, and honor, it's the greatest place to live. When I give my tithe, when I give my offering, and my washing machine breaks down, and my dishwasher breaks down, I don't know about you, sometimes, man, I, everything breaks down at one time. For me, it's like when it happens, my whole household, my fridge, my dishwasher, my, everything breaks down at the same time. You know, in previous years, they would be like, well, what's happening? I'm tithing, God. I'm giving my offerings. No, you know what? Things are going to happen. What's protected is my peace, not just my stuff. 
I'm promised trial, I'm promised tribulation, and that isn't even really trial or tribulation, but you get what I'm saying. It's stressful, it's annoying. When I trust God with my giving, I'm trusting with my soul, because giving is a reflection of my soul, not my stuff. You see this? When I trust God with my giving, I'm not saying I trust you with my stuff. I'm saying I trust you with my soul. Sure, God bless my stuff. Keep it from breaking it down, breaking down. But I'm trusting you when it makes no sense. Over and over and over again. Man, I don't have time to, to continue on here. So sad. I feel so sad about not being able to continue on here. <laughs> not next week. No, not next week. Not next week. Next week's a special Sunday. Not that this is not a special Sunday, but. Let me just end with this. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Let me just end with this. Coffee break here. I'm dying. Spiritually speaking, am I dying? <laughs> I always have interesting conversations after messages like this by people. By the way, people take me out and they're like, I don't agree with that. I'm like, that's okay. We can have a conversation. This, this could be a five-part series easily. I don't have enough time to go through every little thing. This is revelatory if you get it. Think about the very beginning. I'm going to close with this. Hear this last thing and then we're going to close. Genesis chapter 3. In the very, very, very beginning. Remember what the first commandment was to Adam and Eve? You could eat off of every tree in this garden except for one. Right? And he said, where was that one? Right in the center had your attention. It was the first. It was like the thing that was right in the center of your center of the garden. You can eat off every tree, but the one tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you touch it, what did he say? If you touch it, eat it, eat off it, you will what? You will die spiritually. The part of you that I've called to be blessed will die if you take from my tree. You know why it was his tree? It was the knowledge of good and evil. Only God at that point had the revelation of the knowledge of good and evil. People didn't. Human nature didn't have a revelation of evil yet. This is my tree. If you eat off of this tree, it doesn't belong to you. It's my firstborn tree. If you touch it, you will die spiritually. You'll miss it altogether. Every other tree you can eat off of, 90% is yours to play with. Frolic nude. It, as a, the first nudist colony ever to walk the planet. Frolic nude together. Eat the fruit. Eat the trees. But touch this one tree that's mine and you will die spiritually. This was a prophetic picture. A prophetic picture of how God has always been about first. And as soon as they touched the tree, you know what happened? He no longer was first. Because disobedience is a reflection that he's no longer first. Choosing independence rather than dependence is a sign he's no longer first. They chose the tree. They ate what they shouldn't have eaten. MC Hammer said it. You can't touch this. They didn't get it. They weren't prophetic enough to see MC Hammer in the future. Greatest hit. You can't touch this. God said, you can't touch this. It's mine. The first ten is mine. Trust me with the 90 and you watch what I can do. Watch what I can do. You know that Jesus was a tithe into humanity? He was God's tithe. Why? Because he was God's firstborn among many brethren, right? And was he sown? Was he given? Did he return to earth? Listen to this. Did he was he returned to earth? Absolutely. 
because he was the creator. He was returned to earth in the form of a man to die on a cross so that the 90%, the rest of us could be blessed, so the rest of us could be redeemed. He was the firstborn clean lamb that died so all of us morally unclean could be redeemed because that was in the law in Exodus chapter 12. Remember this, in Exodus chapter 12, if the firstborn was unclean, it had to be redeemed by a firstborn clean animal through sacrifice. Jesus came as the sacrifice, as the clean firstborn to redeem all humanity. All of us were redeemed because of him, represented as the most important part often in our lives, our finances. Interesting, isn't it? Why don't you just stand up with me? Oh, this is such a, such a deep, deep, deep teaching today. And like I said, I don't usually do this on a Sunday at this level, but we need to hear this. And my prayer today is that you would be revolutionized in your thinking. 